0: Hello and welcome, Dr. Ashley Smith here, founder and creator of the Glimmer podcast online program for managing grief after stillbirth or neonatal loss. I've lived the anguish, agony, rage and sorrow of losing my daughter Isla to neonatal death earlier this year. It's more than I ever thought I could bear. Coincidentally, I work as a doctor in obstetrics and found myself in this awfully familiar situation because I've personally managed pregnancy loss many times before in my own patients. This bizarre and rather ironic tragedy now gives me a very unique perspective. Since losing Isla, I have found there is a major gap in services available for grieving mothers. Women in our position are more isolated and less able to access the grief resources we need, now more than ever. During this podcast season, through interviewing a diverse range of experts and specialists in the fields commonly accessed by grieving mothers, you and I are going to uncover insights and knowledge that will help navigate the long journey ahead. Don't let the darkness swallow you. I want you to find connection with me And know that you are not alone. May you find peace. May you find connection. And may you find a glimmer of hope. Reminder the views, thoughts and opinions expressed in this podcast belong solely to the individual and do not represent their employer or medical advice. Always consult your doctor. Australian Senator the Honourable Christina Keneally joins the Glimmer podcast today as a fellow warrior mum and stillbirth activist. She spearheaded the 2018 Senate inquiry into stillbirth, which has resulted in far greater government funding to research and bereavement support for affected families. Thank you so much for joining Glimmer today, Christina.
1: It's really my pleasure, Ashley. Thanks for asking me to be here.
0: Now, I'm so sorry for your loss of Caroline through stillbirth. Um, and I know that was just over 20 years ago now. And I wondered if I may ask you, what was the support like from your friends and family in hospital at that time? And how did you manage? Oh, 20 years ago,
1: it, you know, it was quite a different world, you know, that we didn't have the internet, first of all, and um, we uh, and there weren't support groups around there weren't you know podcasts like this obviously (laughs) there weren't um, you know the stillbirth foundation didn't exist Um, you know now there's groups like still aware and you know and and red nose has come into this space but back in 20 years ago there was really nothing where people could connect and find one another so Mm -hmm. i remember when you know coming going into the hospital actually knowing that I had to give birth to Caroline knowing she was going to be stillborn and I remember thinking you know how am I so stupid that I didn't know that this could happen and why how is this even happening this is supposed to be something that happens in your grandmother's generation Mm. I just remember feeling this kind of like I don't know anyone this has happened to yeah. I don't know why this is happening. I don't, I didn't, I should have known, I should have somehow prevented it, you know, and just these, you know, like I joined some club that I never knew existed and I didn't really yeah. want to be a part of. And and I have to say the hospital itself, I was very fortunate compared to some other women uh, in that, you know, and I, I, I say that because I've heard lots of stories now from mm. other women, um, you know, I was at the um, Randwick Women's Hospital here in Sydney. And so maybe I just got lucky in that I had a doctor who'd, you know, who was quite experienced um, with these kinds of situations. And I had a social worker through the hospital who was amazing. And so I was very lucky in that sense. But um, it was a very isolating experience. And it was Isolating in that, you know, I just didn't know anyone else and I didn't yeah. know how to find them. And then, secondly, it was isolating because so many people didn't know how to talk to, to me or my husband about it. And so, yeah. and I don't blame them, but there was a, in the end, I think while, you know, we had a funeral and people came to the funeral and people were supportive, I think for a long time, a lot of our, our friends just
0: really didn't
1: know how to speak to us about it.
0: And the funeral, I can imagine, I mean, I we didn't have a funeral for Isla but mainly because we were paralysed of not knowing what we would say mm. and not knowing, you know, like a normal funeral you get a, a eulogy and people share good stories about it and it's just, yeah. oh, it's just terrible to have to try and organize that in amongst that time of your life.
1: Yeah, I, I understand that completely. Like it's just so overwhelming. And, you know, I think particularly, you know, for me it was certainly the first funeral I was responsible for. You know yeah. I, I, I had all my you know, my parents are still alive and, you know, I just I hadn't even really been involved in any of my any funerals before so this is the first one i would had to organize and I think um, again going back to kind of the pre-internet times um the funeral was actually a way for people to come and show support oh, and it was actually course. a point of which we could connect with others um so in that way it was almost a bit of a, a supportive and an emotional release um, but that being said, also before the internet, you know, we we literally had to send out notices to
0: people, like
1: oh. essentially to say this has happened.
0: What do you mean, like a like a like card a in the mail?
1: Yeah, we actually oh. printed up a card. To, to oh my god, what happened because you know how else were people going to know? <laughs> Short of us phoning everyone, which like, I wasn't <laughs> going to do. Oh um, my god. So yeah, I, I think you know. And I think, too, because, um, you know, and I know each family is different. I have a girlfriend who um, who had a, a stillborn baby and, you know, they had a private cremation and because that was for them what they wanted to do. So everyone mourns differently mm-hmm. and in their own way. But I think particularly my husband and I are, are you know, with members of a church, and for us, at least, there was a structure there we could borrow and use yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. for for a funeral. Um, but uh, it was it was just gut wrenching to have, and uh, you know i I'm glad I did, and I'm glad I have a grave site to visit. But um,
0: yeah. yeah, was the church and your faith helpful throughout those? Say early years. Um. Yes and no. Um.
1: And I say that because, uh, you know, when Caroline was born, the the parish priest, um, you know, he came to the hospital and he blessed her, and you know that was all really quite nice in the sense that it was an acknowledgement that we were the parents mm. of this baby mm. and he had had an existence and. You know, while we couldn't, you know, baptize her, we could certainly give her a name and have her blessed and, and mark her um, existence in that way. And um, And it was quite comforting. I, I think the thing that over the next few years really got to me was this, it was a lot of anger, you know, that my yeah. daughter wasn't with me. And, you know, while yeah. I believe that, you know, our earthly existence isn't the sum total of our existence that I think there's mm. some form of existence beyond that and that was comforting that you know Caroline had it just simply disappeared yeah um, but I think the sense that my baby was not with me you know and why was my baby with God sh- my baby should be with me and why did God take my baby and I you know yes. really as a I don't by this notion of faith that god somehow is directly intervening in our lives deciding you can have this and you can't have that um, mm. but i i think you know i'm my background is actually in theology and particularly in feminist theology and understanding you know the christian god as both male and female and so i remember having this really stark realization that you know um, and this is going to be deeply theological for a moment, so listeners bear with me. <laughs> um, but, um, the, you know if I as a Christian believe that you know God is neither male nor female um, but can be both mother and father. you know then God is a chi- God is a mother whose child has died. you know god 's mm-hmm. son Jesus, came to earth and died. and so God is a mother whose child has died. And it it didn't make everything better, but it made me think. Okay, well, hold on. You know, one, God doesn't intervene in human existence in that way. But God, you know, I believe that 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 you know that that death of of, of this person Jesus would have been, you know, would have been um, something that would have made, you know. Um, would have made God sad. And so if I can put it in really simplistic terms, like that at that level, God understands my suffering. God understands our human suffering uh, because God became human and suffered. And and as a, you know, God as a mother is lost, her, her child died. And it was just this amazing moment of thinking, okay, all the things I've been arguing about that we think about God only in male terms and we don't allow women's experience to shape our understanding of God. Hello, I'm living that right now you know, that that maternal love, someone who brings life into the world and then that life is, is is lost, that's the same kind of love that God can have for humanity. And and so it was just kind of deeply theological personal realization that sort of helped at a at a personal level. Um, but, you know, there were a lot of other things I needed a lot of support and counseling. Um as well it wasn't just a simple faith revelation that
0: got me through it Mm. so Caroline's loss and your grief interrupted your PhD didn't it Christina
1: it did I have to say that um, the solitary nature of doctoral research isn't um, particularly useful when you're suffering through grief and trauma uh it really did not help to be alone in a room with my thoughts and I wasn't easily distracted by the work that I was doing and I took you know a a term off and then I just couldn't see myself going back to it but I also felt like I wanted to do something practical and that's not the you know denigrate academic work I'd spent my you know the last few years of my life prior to that seeking to you know become an academic to you know think great thoughts and write articles and teach and and yet after Caroline's um, stillbirth I just came to a view that life is pretty short and you don't know how much time you're going to get and what kind of opportunities you're going to have so I just wanted to do something practical not theoretical and something that helped people I don't know what I didn't know what it was uh, but I just couldn't see myself going back to doctoral work uh, academic work or really the solitary nature of that work
0: so what did you do
1: well for a while I didn't do anything (laughs) (laughs) um I, I had uh you know my son Daniel and then um you know we decided we would because we did want to have our children close together in age and that I decided we decided to try to have another baby and I had to take you know certain precautions in that pregnancy and I did and you know, we fell pregnant again and my um third child Brendan was born so I had really for about you know 2 or 3 years there I was home uh looking after these two little boys uh, and trying to be a mother to them, and just thinking about what it is that I would do, and not really sure. And in many ways, I really, I didn't feel a stress or an urgency. I was fortunate; my husband has a good, had a good job, but I also, you know, wanted to be able to give them a parent um, and try to be a mother to them. And I say try because it was really hard. Like it was just that sense of. Um, you know, I I had kind of failed at this whole mothering thing, and although I knew I really hadn't, I knew deep down that that was a ridiculous thought. Um, I still just I, I think having those two boys got me out of bed every day and made me focus on the things that I needed to do to make sure that they would be okay and that they would have a happy childhood and that you know they would develop and grow and feel loved, but in terms of what i was going to do with the rest of my life i really didn't have any idea and i looked at things like i thought about social work cuz i'd been really helped by this social worker and i even i looked at the police i thought that might be something i would enjoy but you know that required you to be away from home for you know like 6 months and i couldn't see how that was going to work with these two small boys and my husband's job and so I really didn't have a clear sense of it and and I started doing volunteer work so I was volunteering at you know the an aged care home and I was volunteering at my kids child care center where they were still going you know two days a week so that I could have some opportunity to kind of recover Um and I you know volunteered at our church and I you know I volunteered for the Australian Labor Party, which I was a member of, and I think through all that work, um, you know, I got more involved with the party. Which meant in two thousand and two, when they were looking for a woman uh, to run in the seat, the state seat where I was living, I was you know active and involved, and they knew me, and um, I kind of fit the bill for what they wanted at that point. So, you know, it kind—I always say that. You know, running for politics. Although I'd studied politics at uni and I loved politics, it really hadn't been something on my radar. Uh, largely, because I'd been a migrant to Australia. But um, you know, when the party asked me if I would consider running, I was really keenly interested because it just seemed to fit all my desire to do something practical and my love of politics and my view about the importance of community and social justice. So. I was very lucky in that that came along, but, you know, it's not as if I woke up, you know, one day in 2000 or 2001 and said, right, I'm going to become a politician and that's mm. what will get, you know, I will do. It was more just a sense. I need to do something practical that helps other people because that's how I feel like I will make a contribution and I'll somehow be able to turn what's happened in me into something that is useful for other people.
0: Wow, and haven't you just? I mean, I think everything that's happened with Caroline has completely, by the sounds of things, altered the trajectory of your life. And um, mm. and then, yeah, how do, how does that sit with you now?
1: Uh, look, it has utterly altered the trajectory of my life. It you know, my life uh, has not turned out in any way. Uh, as I uh, planned that it would um but and but that's okay, you know because I mm. think at this stage in my life i'm fifty one you know I'm realize now that you can have plans, but then life will intervene, and things will happen, and you can't control what happens to you, but you can control how you respond to it and how you react to it uh and yeah, that's not to say that that's easy to do uh but um you know it very much has changed the course of my life i I think you know had my life been differently, had all my pregnancies gone to plan, I'd you know probably have four or five kids right now, and i'd probably be an academic and probably only about 200 people in the world would know what I was writing about because that's the nature of Mm -hmm. (laughs) research and you know and that would just be a different life and it would be it would probably it would have been a fine life it would have been okay but you know I just don't know and I I, I'll never know because that sliding doors kind of moment happened and and Mm -hmm. and everything changed for me um I think too that I realized once I ran for the the state seat here in New South Wales and was elected you know that um that, that being the mother of a stillborn baby had changed me personally in ways I hadn't quite appreciated that it would and that's largely that it just made me almost fearless you know in the sense that you know a lot of stuff happens in politics and people attack you and people say hurtful things or they try to criticize you and I kind of realized very early on Who cares, (laughs) you know? Yeah, um, I'm. I'm the mother of a stillborn baby. I have gone through this horrible, terrible thing, and I have survived that. Like, you know, you, someone, you know, is criticizing me in the newspaper. Well, so what, you know? And and it, it was this strength, and it was this fearlessness, and this sense that even if something bad happens, you'll survive it. And I really think that that is been such a such a strength for me during my political career and I I think it's often misunderstood by particularly I hate to say this by my male opponents <laughs> mm. <laughs> who probably I think I think our society doesn't value um, women's experiences as ones that are build strength you know we think about strength in very male terms you know you you go uh, uh, you know, and we even talk about it in male terms, you know be you know be a man and man up and have some balls, and you know it's muscular when someone sh- or you shirt front someone and and I don't think we've really come to appreciate the ways that women's experiences, whether it's you know giving birth, whether it's a live birth or a stillbirth, uh, whether it's you know surviving. Um, rape or domestic violence or divorce or any of the things you know that can knock women back in our society that when you survive those things that gives you a strength and that that can be a profoundly female aspect to strength that I don't think we've really appreciated or celebrated um, or acknowledged in our in our society
0: yeah that that notion of fearlessness um and the sliding doors I feel like I can really relate to that, but I probably wouldn't call it fearlessness i feel maybe I feel more apathetic to this yeah. <laughs> to this um, uh the trajectory or something and um yeah I guess maybe that changes over time and it feels like strength but I don't know. Now it just feels like I feel yeah, like I couldn't really be that hurt by other things happening in life. If you know what I mean, but I just feel also kind of apathetic in whatever might happen, I wouldn't care because
1: Well, and I think that's where the I can understand that completely. That that apathy is kind of the beginning of the strength, right? Because mm-hmm. it's not until something else you know that does happen where someone maybe is trying to hurt you or um where in, you think oh, if that had happened to me five years ago I would have been really derailed by it but now yeah yeah eh, you know <laughs> I'll learn from it sure like you know I, I, things like you know I remember the first time I took a a, a a proposal to the cabinet as a state minister and, and I got knocked back and, like, I was, you know, Christina, of you know, 10 years earlier would have been mortified to have been so <laughs> in front of her peers. I'm like, oh, well, you know, okay, well, I'll learn from that. What? How do I make sure that doesn't happen again? But I wasn't mortified. <laughs> like, mm. oh, well.
0: <laughs> yeah.
1: Yeah. So.
0: yeah. Okay, so I really want to talk about the Senate inquiry into stillbirths. Mm. And what was that process like for you?
1: You Yeah, I started out thinking it would be uh, a a really, um, just a really good policy process where we would hear from researchers and we would hear from parents and we would hear from clinicians and we would develop a set of research, you know, policy recommendations about funding and research and priorities. And that, you know, we would produce this good policy document at the end. And, And and we did do that. Um, I think going into it, I probably underestimated the extent to which it would be emotional for me, uh, for my staff, for my my fellow committee members, for the Hansard and other parliamentary staff and the the committee secretariat. Like it was a really full-on inquiry in the sense that we had we had, I can't remember, something close to 400 submissions. And just to put that in context, like sometimes an inquiry will only get about 12 or 15 submissions. So mm-hmm. have that, that many um, just spoke to the extent to which people were really willing to sit down and put their story down and their experiences and their recommendations for change. And so the hearings became, you know, I made, the hearings became quite, personal for a lot of people um, because you would have these parents or grandparents or researchers or doctors or sonographers all of whom had been you know whether they were the parent or not even if they were the sonographer or the the clinician they were emotionally affected Mm -hmm. by the um, experience of stillbirth in however they'd participated in it And so there was that just raw emotion in the hearings. Um, But, you know, I decided I would read every submission in full. um, And, you know, going through 400 different stories of grief was um, important to do, but it was also really hard to do. Mm. Um, And I think what I started out feeling really distraught at the stories uh and I then I realized that 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 distress turned into anger and that anger was that in 20 years nothing had changed (laughs) it just seemed to me you know I, I had kind of gone in with I knew like there's this old saying in politics don't hold an inquiry unless you know what the answer is and um yeah, you know, I, I thought I didn't, and I, and I kind of did know what the answer is. You know, I, I knew there was this safer baby bundle that the Stillbirth Centre was trying to get up, and I knew that there were answers that we could take out of how the Netherlands and Scotland had approached it, and I knew that there were different ways we could do bereavement care that we weren't doing. So I thought, I know what this is going to look like at the end. So I, I I felt comfortable in that, but I think what I hadn't prepared for, I think I'd kind of naively assumed that things had gotten better in 20 years and to find out they really hadn't. And in some ways people were having worse experiences than what I had had 20 years ago. And Mm -hmm. that just made me angry because in 20 years where we have improved healthcare in so many different ways, we haven't even done the basics here. (laughs) Like We're not Mm -hmm. even doing the basics. Down to, for example... You know, one of the stories that we heard was from this woman who you know had a stillborn baby in the in the hospital, and she kept talking about how um, the hospital itself just wasn't set up to deal with it. So things like, you know, the um, the the cleaner would come in the room to you know clean up after lunch and would say things like, "Oh, oh where's the baby? Is it down in the nursery?" Oh my yeah. god. Or the hospital called her three months after, the baby, after mm. the baby had been born and said, you haven't brought your baby in for its hearing check. Mm. How do we not have systems in place? How can there not be a system that just is like a little note on the file, a sign on the door, a flag that's on the file? Yeah,
0: normally it's the butterfly on the room.
1: Yeah. and when Was of- that a
0: peripheral centre? I mean, because you said you delivered at Royal... I was in. With, yeah. And I, I delivered in a tertiary center, like the be, one of the best in Queensland. And yeah, it was fully set up. Like, you know, they deal with this all the time. I've personally worked there, like, it's ready to go. And so would the women's down in Sydney be. But was this person peripheral?
1: Yeah, she was just in your in the maternity ward of her local hospital, and they were just not set up for it. And unfortunately, mm-hmm. she wasn't the only one. But I just remember her giving evidence and thinking, "Oh, for goodness sakes!" Like, uh,
0: that a- and, and that's the beauty of a specialist women's hospital, isn't it? Um, mm. Because it is set up for stuff like that. And I don't think as often anyway. I think that that would be rare for something like that to slip through the cracks and, oh, that's so awful. (sighs) Okay, so then the – so you read all of those 400 submissions and I would just – I don't even know how you would manage that emotion. (laughs)
1: Uh, Yeah, look, I think it was – one thing I know about me is I need to feel – one, when I, when I know that um, I, sorry about that beep. I'll start that answer over so your people can edit out that beep and I'll try to yeah. figure out how to turn that off. Um, so one thing I know about me is that I don't tend to get emotional in public unless it's on this issue. Um, I can no. largely handle, you know, difficult situations in public. Um, but on this issue I do feel an, overwhelm, an overwhelming mm. sense of sadness and and will be moved, and that's okay, but I just thought I can't be sobbing in these hearings. I need to mm. experience this emotionally before I can start to experience it intellectually and in a policy sense and think about what it means. Um, but um, it really was important to, um, to think about it emotionally first um, because you know, I, emotions are important, but I also wanted us to be able to move in the in the public hearings from a sense of people just feeling sad, like, I mean, journalists or other people who were watching the hearings. I didn't want them to just think, oh, this is also sad. Mm, I wanted them to also yes. think that there were solutions here. And yeah. it was about being able to move it to that. And I think, too, for the parents, they particularly – yes, they wanted acknowledgement of their story and their experience, but they also just desperately didn't want it to happen to again or to anyone else. Yes. Yeah. And so there was a real generosity there of their sharing that you know, we also needed to honour and get you know, to a recommendation that arose out of fixing whatever went wrong in their experience.
0: And you personally, did you feel that there was something when you look back that was preventable, for Caroline. Uh, because I know you would have gone through that with a fine tooth comb like we all have.
1: <laughs> yeah. So, I mean, the the I I was I feel that it's that's almost unknowable in my circumstance. We had a um we had a, a autopsy done, which again, I just was one of the things I found so surprising in the inquiry was the extent to which autopsies are not done. I think I naively assumed that my experience, again, at the Royal Women's, where they had doctors Mm -hmm. who talked to to me about this and my husband, and they were able to help us, you know, make the decision and understand the value of having that done. Um, You know, I just, that just doesn't happen in most, in, in many places in Australia, you know, the doctors almost yeah. tell parents, "Oh, don't worry about an autopsy," because they don't want to put yeah. their parents through having to make yes. that decision. Yeah, and whereas I just, if I hadn't had that autopsy, I think we would have risked risked having it having you know the, another baby with the same condition Caroline had, um, okay. and also we were then able to make decisions about how many children we were going to have because. With Caroline, you know, what happened to her runs in sibling groups and they don't know why. And so whether it's genetic or environmental or just one of those weird things, but it does tend to happen more often in sibling groups. So, yeah, you know, we were able to, in hindsight, I don't know if we would have been able to prevent it or have done anything to it that would have prevented it. There were some steps we could take in a subsequent pregnancy to help reduce the risk. But you know, the doctors were pretty clear to it with us that you know we still ran a risk um, with every pregnancy we I might have that this would happen again. So you know, Mm -hmm. I found it very useful for me. I think that the thing that I would have preferred um, in in hindsight is just having had more information before I was laying on the sonographer's table, being told that my baby wasn't going to survive Um, because if I known in pregnancy that this was a thing <laughs> that could happen mm-hmm. and it was a thing that you know I might need to make decisions about like about autopsies or about funerals or you know I think I I would have preferred to have known those are choices that some parents have to make in pregnancy you know one in 135 parents in Australia uh, will have to make that choice in a pregnancy and you know mm-hmm. I I think back to how emotionally distraught and overwhelmed I was at that point. And I don't know that I would have done anything different, but I would have preferred to have at least thought through what choices, what I have made. It's, it's that thing about, you know, the, you know, the, the airline tells you the worst thing that's going to happen when you get on a plane and you, mm. sure you know what you're going to do. If they tell you how to minimize the risk, I think in pregnancy, we would be better off telling women, and and parents these are the things that can happen and these are you know and when that does there they will need to be other choices that need to be made hopefully that won't happen for you but you know i wouldn't want you to go through pregnancy not being aware of that and i think that kind of conversation should happen in every um instance where a woman is going through pregnancy and receiving um know, medical care that should just happen and it doesn't today
0: This podcast is brought to you by the Glimmer 3-week online program designed to help manage the grief after pregnancy or newborn loss through peer support, daily specialized meditations and video content. Glimmer will help you to feel connected and less isolated and alone because you are not alone in this grief. Pregnancy loss affects thousands of women every week. Don't let yourself do this alone. Feel the connection and support. Learn tools and techniques that actually help manage grief after pregnancy or newborn loss. Develop strategies that you can bring with you into the rest of your life. Devote as little as 10 minutes per day and you'll see the transformation that the Glimmer program can offer you in just three short weeks. If you would like to buy this program for yourself, a family member, a friend or simply want to contribute to the continuation of this podcast and social movement helping families affected by the loss of a baby, go to theglimmerproject.com. Yeah, that's that's interesting because um, I guess I personally took it for granted that I did already know exactly how to manage what happened um, to Isla and Because I've worked in obstetrics for years and it is just such a well worn path that we, you know, as doctors manage all the time. Mm. And so I could mentally make very clear, swift decisions. And I don't then look back or question, you know, the care or what pathway we took or anything because it was, um, yeah crystal clear and then I have absolutely no regrets um about choices because I had considered it all before you know hoping it would never happen to me but yeah it wasn't nothing was a shock just Mm. other than the obvious shock that (laughs) happened um so so what do you think are the most important outcomes from the senate inquiry
1: well first of all that we even have a um National set of recommendations. I mean, this is the first time we've had a national set of recommendations about stillbirth in Australia, uh, which is mm-hmm. somewhat extraordinary, uh, but there it is. Uh, you know, we we haven't had that previously. And now the government's got a draft national action plan, and that's important because that actually drives, you know, policy and practice um, decisions Um, across the country so it's things like the safer baby bundle which is about education for clinicians and for parents Um, and that's being rolled out now already across New South Wales, Victoria and Queensland Mm -hmm. Uh, so I think the education component is important and there's still more to be done it's more than just the safer baby bundle but I think that's the first big step forward Um, in the areas of um, when, when a stillbirth occurs, Australia is really bad at recording the data in a consistent and clear way across all jurisdictions and recording the data that would be useful uh, mm. to help researchers understand where, how, why stillbirth is occurring. And that includes um, autopsies or at a minimum examining the placenta of every stillbirth. Um, and feeding those findings back into um, practice um, as soon as possible. So one example there is, you know, um, in Victoria, they started recording the ethnicity of mothers um, during still who had a stillbirth. And, you know, they, basically they decided they were going to record everything they could and review it and then try to feed that back into recommendations into the, the hospital um, within about three months. And what they started realizing is that women who have Southeast Asian background had higher rates of stillbirth in the last few weeks of pregnancy uh, than other groups. And, you know, they said, we don't know why that's the case. And, you know, whatever, but it's happening. So what can we do about it? And so what they did about it was that if a woman of Southeast Asian background presented in the last few weeks of pregnancy with the risk factors for stillbirth, they just delivered her. They didn't, you know, wait around. They didn't, you know, do what they might have done previously, which was a few days on a fetal monitor or, you know, um, they just delivered her. And so what they ended up with was no women of Southeast Asian backgrounds having stillbirths. Wow. And, you know, it's that kind of just collecting the data, working out what's happening And then working out what that means. So, you know, so now in Victoria, if you're, you know, of an Anglo background or Chinese background and you turn up with some of the, you know, your baby's movements have changed or, you know, uh, there's some other risk factor for stillbirth presented, the baby is small for its age, you know, they might still, they'll probably still monitor you or they'll probably take some other type of step, but, you know, they know that there's a higher risk if you're from that Southeast Asian background. So, Maybe someday someone will do some research and work out why. But until that happens, you know, changing your practice based on what you see happening is really important. Um, So that that's one thing we need to do. Um, You know, we need to investigate you know, stillbirth when it happens and feed that back into um, practice. And, And the data, the third thing is about the data. It's not just about the collection. It's about making it available to researchers in a way that is useful to them. You know, our states all collect data differently. In Australia, we actually have two different data sets about stillbirth. There's the ABS, the Australian Bureau of Statistics, which just records births that are registered um, with the state health, with the state um, birth deaths and marriages, and then you have got the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare, which, read, which re- records everything that happens in the hospitals. So you, if you look at, um, they're, they're actually double the Australian Institute of Health and Welfare numbers for stillbirth are double that of the ABS. Um, and so if we can't even get just the raw numbers of how many happen, right, we're missing a whole lot of other factors and data that could be really useful. And also, the last thing, it needs to be timely data. It's no good finding out four years later, which is now what happens, that you know, the rate of stillbirth went, say, down for a while in Victoria amongst Indigenous women. Well, why? You know, what did they do different that year? Was there any reason that happened this year? Four years later, it's almost impossible to know. So mm. um, the data needs to be comprehensive, timely, and accessible.
0: Oh, that's, I love that story you told about just within 3 months they fed back that data about yeah. the southeast asian women because yeah the theory is that different ethnicities have different gestations you know so what might be post dates you know for a caucasian or a you know african person might be 40 weeks or 41 weeks and for southeast Asians might be 39 weeks and yeah that we don't really know that yet at this point in history is totally bizarre mm. well
1: the united kingdom has <laughs> got a goal to have their have their stillbirth birth rate by 2025 you know so reduce it by 50 percent by 2025 and they've developed an ethnicity-based chart to help them work wow. out when and how to intervene when there's a risk of stillbirth um, as part of their approach to doing this and you know they're a multiracial country just like and you know we really should be looking at that um the other things that are you know of course in australia we know that women from rural and regional backgrounds have higher rates of stillbirth and that's largely about access to consistent Mm. care um we know that indigenous women for a range of um, factors almost double the rate of stillbirth and that's about care and that's about a range of other things that you know affect the overall health um um of aboriginal people in this country um and then we also know that women who migrate to australia almost doesn't matter where they've come from um for the 10 years after they've migrated they have higher rates of stillbirth and you know i I kind of fit that because i'd migrated within you know that was within 10 years of my migration to this country and Mm -hmm. it it You know, it may have a. It could have to do with the health conditions from where they came, or the health they were in when they got here, or their knowledge of risk factors. It could be to do with their knowledge of the health system. You know, I even I, as a Mm. first world um, English speaking person from a country, had couldn't really understand how healthcare (laughs) worked in Australia. Like so, (laughs) I'd had my first baby in America, and. The, the 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 maternity care prenatal care in America is so different than it is here it was just weird um to me yeah. the, the system and it wasn't that it was bad or good it was just completely different um so navigating it came with a, a like i had assumptions in my head of how it should work and it worked very differently so mm. i think it, though, those may be factors that feed into it so we know that there are some <laughs> risk groups where we could um we could make some changes in practice that we have nothing to do yeah. with paternity care and just about the availability of consistent, clear care uh, that could make a difference.
0: Oh, I'm feeling very inspired. This is this is very exciting, Christina. Do you feel at the you know at this point now with this inquiry, you feel inspired that things are going to improve here in Australia?
1: I do. Um, I. Don't know how fast they're going to improve, and partly that's because COVID has um, stalled the work on this, as it's stalled the work on a whole lot of things mm-hmm. in our community. Um, so the you know the the progress to the national action plan being adopted may not be as fast as as you know we first thought, mm-hmm. um, and you know I I wonder um, how the impact of COVID as a health crisis as well as as an economic crisis will impact on stillbirth rates. Yeah. You know, because you know, we know, say, in the GFC and in the aftermath of that, in some countries the stillbirth rate went up, you know, partly because of things like, you know, people weren't going to see the doctor as much. So
0: Yeah. You know, I had heard it an increased in the UK during COVID.
1: Yeah and and you know for example when when Greece um had their austerity measure, measures after the GFC their still birth rate went up it was one of the one mm-hmm. of the grim indicators of how bad things were getting in Greece um mm-hmm. so So I I have optimism, and I have optimism though because you know there is going to be a national action plan, and it will have a a target now. Whether it'll be ambitious enough, and whether it'll have the funding streams attached that it needs to achieve it, I don't know. But there will be a national action plan, and that will draw and that will produce a requirement for um, governments at state and federal level to measure progress against that action plan, and that does eventually drive change. You know, I think mm-hmm. prior to COVID, I would have had a view that, um, you know, we could re- we could achieve a, a 30% reduction in, in stillbirth within a couple of years in Australia, because there is some low-hanging fruit um, mm-hmm. and things that we're just not doing, that we could be doing. Like, there are things we know about stillbirth prevention that we're not telling parents, you know, things like falling to sleep, asleep on your side, or, you know, get to learn how to monitor your baby's movements and know when they've changed, um, you know, and some of the things that we do in pregnancy um, for, for help, you know, to get drive healthy outcomes are useful um, for stillbirth, but we don't link them to stillbirth. So, we, you know, we say smoking can harm your baby. We say alcohol can harm your baby. You know, in fact, those things can kill your baby. And mm. so we don't, we're not that blunt with people. And in some ways, I really think we should be. Um, mm. We need to be upfront with people that stillbirth happens and there are things you can do to reduce your risk. Um, it mm. will still happen. And this is the fine line we'll have to walk as well, because we don't want to blame people when stillbirth happens, because it mm. will still happen. There is no, the, the, the causes of stillbirth are varied. Um, and I don't, I mean, I'd love to think that there's a silver bullet, the way there was with sudden infant death syndrome of you know put babies to sleep mm. on the back that led to mm. like an eighty five percent drop in SIDS. Um, you know, but that being said, you know the Netherlands has had something like a sixty percent drop in stillbirth once they you know just decided to aggressively um, make it a priority. So, you know, I think there's there is actual proof that this can be done. There is a plan that has been started to put in place and people are starting to talk about it publicly, which is really the most important thing, because, you know, for such a long time, nobody talked in public about stillbirth. And and I think the outpouring of submissions we had to the inquiry was just evidence that people were desperate for someone to hear their experience and recognize this as a public health problem not just as some terrible thing that happened to a a woman and her family, but actually a public health problem that we could do something about.
0: Yeah. And there's part of me that feels a bit fearful as well as to what you might uncover with all of this data or something that's like, you know, you never should have eaten this in pregnancy or something that transpires to, you know, then you live with regret that you didn't know. But at the same time, if you find this out, then future pregnancies, then you can, you know, not have it happen again. So I want to ask you the last question is what do you recommend for the listener or other parents of stillborn babies who want to make a difference like you have? Where would you suggest that they start?
1: Well, it depends on what they, you know, feel comfortable doing, and I think that's important. People should do what they feel comfortable doing. Um, but if you're the parent of a stillborn baby, you know, there's so much more. Um, there's so many more ways to be involved in um, stillbirth um, prevention and reduction now, and and also to support other parents who are going through it. So, you know, there's the Stillbirth Foundation. Uh, Australia, which funds research, uh, and you know, people—they are always looking for ambassadors, people who are willing to tell their story. You know, because they often get media requests or speaking requests. Um, of course, people, if they can, are always—they can always donate to those things or encourage friends and family members to mark your your baby's birthday as you know, make a small donation mm-hmm. in their memory. And it, the Stillbirth Foundation actually has a, a place on their website where you can you know have your baby's name recorded and on the month of their birth they'll put it up there um you know so it's a way for people to actually have their baby Mm -hmm. marked and and known and for people if they want to to give a donation Um, there's groups like still aware um which you know really work to raise the awareness of the issue and it provides support to other parents and information so you can always check them out um, but I think, too, there's, you know, there's lots of, I've, I've come across lots of small community-based efforts. There's a group in, you know, that people can think about in their own communities. There's a group I visited in Wagga in New South Wales, and there's a group of women there, um, you know, one of whom who had a stillborn baby. They've come together and they've created these little packs that they, that and they work with the hospital. When a baby is stillborn, they basically... You know, provide this pack to the family and it's it's this you know like a candle and a little teddy bear and a, a book to put photos in of the baby and you know, record their mm. footprints and you know um, some information about what lo- this local support group and it's just a nice kind of to let people know they're not alone and that there are there is some information and people they can connect with and ways they can remember their child it's really beautiful um there's it. a group uh, there's another set of parents um who've uh who've created this um with their friends this annual bike ride between Sydney and Canberra to raise money um, for still they've raised probably over $300,000 now (laughs) over the course of five to 10 years. I don't know how long, it's been a number of years they've been doing it, but not that long. it's just extraordinary so that there's lots of different ways people are choosing to get involved. And I think the internet does really help with that um, to find, you know, ways to connect or create, you know, Events and 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 memorials and and opportunities. So, yeah. And then, of course, I would always say to people participate in the the political process. So, you know, if you really want to know and, and see action happen, you know, write to your local member about the Stillbirth National Action Plan and say, you know, uh, I'm really keen to see it adopted. You know, I'm really keen to see it funded. And, you know, uh, can you give me an update on what your view is on it? You know these local members take those things seriously and I uh, I would, or they should, and I would really encourage people or get a little letter writing campaign up in your, amongst your community or your friends about it. So um, just to make sure that, the, you know, I can do what I can do and my colleagues and I can do what we can do in the Senate uh, to make sure that the government um, continues to deliver. But I think, you know, the important, the involvement of citizens and parents have stillborn babies. And, there's, a, you know, every year there's 2,200 more in Australia who are in that um, situation. You know, mm-hmm. over 20 years, we've got, you know, nearly 50,000 people who, mm-hmm. you know, in Australia who have had that experience. And, you know, they and their, their parents and their siblings and their friends all speaking up does make a real difference.
0: Oh, that's a great way to finish off so thank you so much for your time today Christina I really appreciate it and I really appreciate what you've done um, in your whole career to help everyone that's gone after you and after Caroline and it's a beautiful legacy to her.
1: Thank you Ashley and, and thank you for what you're doing it's amazing what you're doing to help other parents and and, and turning your, um, your daughter Isla's Uh, life into something that gives hope to others that's really beautiful as well so thank you
0: and to you dear listener you're in my thoughts you are not alone just keep going keep going if you're feeling like you need urgent help call your local hospital doctor or 24-hour mental health hotline for more perinatal grief resources join the glimmer program and visit www.theglimmerproject.com. Make sure you click subscribe so you don't miss any future podcast episodes and spread the word about this podcast to any other woman and her family and friends who are grieving pregnancy or newborn loss. Thank you.